Well, for our guests, we are making our way through Exodus, the book of Exodus, and uh, this is a more difficult passage that we come to this morning. It's going to be one that I'm going to deal with in a more broad theological way to try to orient us to where we are in the biblical story and how that unfolds into the New Testament. So it's, hang with me this morning. I'm going to try to root what's going on here in the, larger, in the larger biblical story. But we're going to be taking larger chunks now as we move through the rest of the book of Exodus uh, we stopped for a while in chapter 20 and considered the Ten Commandments, and now we're going we're gonna to pick up the pace quite a bit. So this morning, what we see in front of us is a covenant ceremony that is taking place between God and the people of Israel. That's been sort of ongoing since chapter 19. Chapter 19 is where it sort of begins, and chapter 24 is where it ends. And so I want to talk about this covenant ceremony, the significance of it in the Bible, and that's where we're going this morning. So if you have a copy of the notes in front of you, you'll see the three points for my sermon as we walk through chapter 23, verse 20 through chapter 24. The first point this morning is God keeps his covenant promises in conquest. The first part of our text this morning, beginning at verse 20 through the end of chapter 23, is really God's description of taking over the land of Canaan slowly so that his people can occupy that land. And you remember this has been an ongoing theme throughout the book of Exodus that God was going to deliver his people out of Egypt but for the purpose that they would be put into the, to a land of their own. And this is God keeping his promises and restating his promises and letting Israel know he hasn't forgotten about those promises. And these promises date all the way back to the founding of the people of Israel in the days of Abraham. I want to share some of those verses with you to show the original promise and why it's now being fulfilled right here. God's original promise to Abraham was in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, 13, we read the following. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, Egypt, right? And will be servants there under Pharaoh. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. God told them this in the days of Abraham. We see that followed up with Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, 3, where we read, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. So he hasn't forgotten, even in the days of Isaac. He hasn't forgotten in the days of Jacob either. Genesis 28, verses 13 through 16. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, restating his original promise to Abraham. Verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And we know this promise came to pass. For 400 years, Israel, just like God had told Abraham, languished in, under Egyptian bondage, Joseph having been brought there. But God had not forgotten his promise all along that way to bring them back to this land. God called Moses, and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God liberated his people from Egyptian slavery. And they crossed the Red Sea on the dry ground, they received food from the sky and water from the rock we saw in Exodus 15 through 17. And then in three months, they arrive at Sinai, which is where we've been for the last several weeks. And here God makes a solemn covenant with Israel 
to confirm and undergird the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So this morning, we're going to see him confirm that covenant. That's where we are in the story of Exodus. So we see in this passage, Exodus 23, 20 through the end of the chapter, is this conquest of Canaan that's promised, that God has not forgotten his promises and God will keep them. Isn't that good news for us this morning? We've talked a lot, prayed a lot, sung a lot about trials and difficulties. And over and over again, if we have eyes to see it in the scripture, God drops little reminders over and over again. Hey, I've not forgotten. I've not forgotten. I've not forgotten. I know you think I've forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I see you. I know you. I'm with you. I'll keep my promises to you. And that's good news for us. So we read this somewhat obscure passage about God promising that he's going to drive out the Canaanites and he's going to bring Israel in slowly. And we can read that and think, wow, what's this weird political thing going on? But nevertheless, behind it all is a God who is faithful to his covenant, keeping his promises that he swore to the nation. That's point number one. God keeps his covenant promises and conquest. Point number two, Israel makes their covenant promises through confirmation. So let's look at Exodus 24 and see in a big, in, a, in kind of an overarching way, what's going on here in this story. Well, if we look back at Exodus 19, we're, we're reminded that Moses went up on Mount Sinai for the first time in Exodus 19, and the general terms of the covenant were given, and the people accepted them back in Exodus 19. And God is going to speak to them now, and he does in Exodus 20 as he gives them the 10 words. And then as we saw last week, the application of those 10 words in chapters 21 through 23 as he begins to unpack how the 10 commandments show up in the life of Israel in everyday life. Now, what's, what in, what's going on in chapter 24 is that Moses, God tells Moses to get the priests and the elders and to come up the mountain after the people again accept the terms of the covenant. Now, you might pause here and say, wait, all right, if we remember back in Exodus 19, they already accepted the terms of the covenant first. And then God spelled out the stipulations, uh, the, the obedience that was required, the 10 words and all the applications of them. And now they're reaffirming the covenant again. Well, I want you to think about it like a ceremony. There is, there is this, there's this formal process. It's almost like a wedding. That's the, that's the thing that's the closest analogy that we have. In the beginning of the wedding... When the father brings the bride down, the, the minister, whoever's officiating the wedding, asks, you know, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And, and then there's, there's sort of this exchange of, of, of responsibility. And then when the, the, the wife and the husband take the vows, they're formalizing that. But that's sort of what's going on here. In Exodus 19, you sort of have this initial giving away ceremony and then in Exodus 24, you have the formalizing of those vows after they've heard what's required of them. See, in Exodus 19, they hadn't heard everything yet, but in Exodus 24, they had. And so God on both ends sort of ha has them affirm what they're doing. And that's part of this covenant cer ceremony. And then after the people affirm that they will do all that God has spoken, Moses writes it down, he builds an altar, he makes sacrifices, and he seals the covenant in blood, which is how covenants were sealed. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam, who are professors over at Southern Seminary in Louisville, um, wrote the following about what the, what's going on here in Exodus 24. They say the offering in Exodus 24 is not specified as a sin or reparation sacrifice, 
nor is the verb sprinkled used, as is normal for offerings for sin. The blood is applied to the altar, representing God, as well as to the people, and certainly God does not need to be cleansed from sin. Instead, the ceremony indicates the meaning. Half of the blood is put on God, and half is put on the people. In between these two symbolic acts is the reading of the book of the covenant and the vow of the people to keep its stipulations. The symbolism is that the one blood joins the two parties. What is most similar to the ceremony of Exodus 24 is a wedding. Two people who were not related by blood are now, by virtue of the covenant of marriage, closer than any other kin relation. You could almost picture this blood sacrifice ceremony as the exchanging of the wedding bands. These people are pledging themselves to God to be his people, and God is pledging himself to be their God. And this is confirmed by the fact that what happens right afterwards? They have a little reception. They go and have a meal together, which is where we get the idea for that to, that to happen on the tail end of our weddings. So this is confirmed by the fact that a party representing the people ascends the mountain and eats a meal with in the presence of God. And that's where Jim wrapped up his reading for us. Now, I want to, I want to put this in a broader theological context. So hang with me, okay? We're going to go to the New Testament and read what the Apostle Paul says about what's going on here in Exodus 24. Then later in the sermon, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews and see what Hebrews says about this, and then eventually what Jesus himself in Matthew 17 teaches us about this passage. So let's go together to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This is Paul's one of, the, one of the places that Paul deals with this covenant ceremony in Exodus 24 and applies it for our understanding and how we are to think about it as new covenant Christians. Galatians chapter 3. It's a somewhat foreign text to many of us, but I hope that after explaining it, you'll see the connections. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 18 is what we're going to read. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, what is Paul doing here in Galatians 3? Well, he's doing several things, but one of the things he's trying to do is convince the Galatian church that some false teachers who had come in, they, they were teaching that the covenant with Moses, which we're reading now and have been studying, and the covenant with Abraham were really kind of separate covenants. They were operating on different terms. They were, they were, they were, they, they, they were operating under different premises. From their perspective, the false teachers' perspective, they were saying the Abrahamic covenant is one of promise. But the law came afterwards, and it changed the nature of the covenant God had made. And it became a law-based covenant that required works of the law in order for people to be made right with God. Paul does not agree with that. And he sees one unified covenant promise between Abraham and Moses. Now, why is that important? Because the law 
that is this Mosaic covenant in Exodus 24, was not added to teach a different way for Israel to gain the inheritance. The way God offered blessing to Israel through Abraham and the way God offered blessing to Israel through Moses were not contrary to each other. If in the law, God were telling people that they could earn their way to blessing by their works of obedience, then the covenant with Abraham would be annulled. But if God were adding stipulations so that people could supplement their faith with their own effort, then the promise to Abraham is completely void. For God's dealing with Abraham showed that divine blessing freely comes to those who have faith, who believe his promise, not to those who try to earn it by works of the law. Here's what John Piper says. In both covenants, the promise, that is both Abrahamic and Mosaic, in both covenants, the promise of God's blessing comes by grace through faith and is not earned. Have we seen that so far in the Sinai covenant? How gracious it was? We've talked about that repeatedly, that, there was, that God was not expecting them to do some obedience and works so that he would bless them. Rather, he delivered them and then called them to live obediently, which is the same way he treats us in the new covenant. And it was the same way he treated Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant are not fundamentally different. Again, Piper goes on to say, but in both covenants, the faith, the faith which saves taps into God's power in such a way that obedience results. And this obedience is such a necessary extension of saving faith that in both covenants, obedience to God is a condition of final salvation. Not legalistic works of law, but spirit-empowered obedience of faith. Listen to what God says repeatedly to Abraham and Isaac in the book of Genesis. Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18. God says to Abraham, after his obedience in offering Isaac, this is when he's on the mountain and he, he calls Isaac to come bring the wood, and for this, or Isaac asks, where's the, where's the wood for the sacrifice? And God had called him to sacrifice his son as a test of his obedience. And here's what he says after that. Because you have done this, that is not withhold your, withheld your son, I will indeed bless you and multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. By your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves because you've obeyed my voice. Now, is he earning that? No, he's demonstrating his faith. He's demonstrating that he believes God's word. He's demonstrating the reality that he trusts God. God's not blessing him because he's earning it through some sort of works of the law. He's, he's blessing him because he's demonstrating faith. He's demonstrating obedience. There's a big difference here between obedience that's flowing from faith and obedience that's trying to earn. Again, Genesis chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, God says to Isaac, I'm going to multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. See, God is treating Isaac on the basis of Abraham's faith. Genesis 18, 19, God says, I've chosen Abraham that he may charge his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. So it seems clear that the covenant with Abraham was not completely unconditional, but God's ultimate blessing was not earned through the works of the law. It, it, is, it does result in obedience, but it is not earning. The obedience on which salvation depends is simply the way a person acts if they're really trusting the promises of God. So Moses himself sees the law as simply a restatement of the conditions of the Abrahamic covenant. 
We read in Deuteronomy 7, 12, and 13, Because you believe or hearken to these ordinances and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love which he swore to your fathers to keep. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. For Moses, the covenant made at Sinai, according to what we see in Galatians 3, is merely a reaffirmation and spelling out of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Faith, as evidenced in its fruit, was the requirement for both covenants. Now, why do I speak so, so much, or why are we taking so, a few minutes here to just root this covenant reality? Because I want you to understand that the Mosaic covenant, that, that these ramif- these, this, this commitment ceremony that's taking place, is not rooted in, well, God said, I'm going to bless you, but you've got to earn it. I'm going to bless you, but you've got to earn it. That's what the Judaizers said to the Galatians. And Paul said it was another gospel because it was teaching that we could somehow earn grace, that we could earn God's forgiveness, that we could earn salvation rather than receiving it as grace freely and responding in obedience. So back to Exodus 24 now. You can stay in Galatians 3. We're going to hop around the New Testament a little bit here in a minute. But in verses 9 and 10, we see Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders go up part way up the mountain and they have a feast and they see God's glory. So in verse 12, the Lord calls Moses further up to receive the tablets of stone written by God and Moses goes up into the cloud in verse 18 at the end of the chapter and remains there 40 days to receive instructions on how Israel is to worship God, which is we're going to see the next two weeks has to do with the construction of a building for God known as a tabernacle. So I want you to consider something. Let's look back at, I told you to stay there and I misinformed you, so I apologize for that. Go back to Exodus chapter 24 and I want you to see something of the blessing that God has provided for his people that was unique, that they hadn't yet experienced here in Exodus 24. Look at verses 9 through 11. So it says that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, as I just said, and 70 of the elders, went up the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. Now Moses has been privy to those things, but never has it been expanded out to include others. And there was under his feet, verse 10, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What was it like in Exodus 19? Look back. Look at Ex- turn back a few chapters. Exodus 19. And look at verses 20 through 24. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to them, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now in verse, in chapter 24, we see... Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 70 of the elders and Israel of Israel went up and he did not, that is God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now something's changed here. They've been granted some access to God. 
When we consider the warnings of the consequences for those who tried to go up the mountain that we just read in Exodus 19, the words he did not lay a hand on them are all the more amazing. God didn't do anything to them but welcome them into his presence. Now, all that said, this narrative has a latent frustration attached to it on purpose. That being the fact that there is still a distance between the Lord and his people. Yes, the elders are able to approach the Lord, but the people are still at the bottom seeing the Lord like a devouring fire, according to chapter 24, verse 17. Yes, the elders are able to approach the Lord, but they can only go halfway up the mountain and only Moses can fully enter the presence of the Lord. We know that the obedience of the people works out to be short-lived, all of which suggests that there's something not quite there about this covenant. This is not to undermine the massive step that that it represents in Israel's relationship with the Lord, but now there appears to be room for improvement. This is not the whole story. Listen, when when you start the Bible and you're reading in Genesis, and God is walking among the garden with his people, full access, full privilege, But as a result of our sin, that immediate access is severed. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, and there's angels stationed at the the east gate to guard the way in. So here we have something of this being restored, this presence of God being back with his people, but there's a frustration to it. There's these limitations and stipulations and requirements and commandments and only certain people can come here and only, only this time and these people, even though we give you a little more access, got some elders in there, got, some, got, got that act, but still the people are at the bottom of the mountain beholding God as a devouring fire. It's not where it once was. But brothers and sisters, the rest of the Bible tells us how we're going to get back to Eden how we get back into the immediate presence of God. And so point two, we see Israel's confirmation of the covenant. And point number three, finally, we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about how Christ fulfills these promises by coming. Obviously, this is not the end of the story. God's going to have a tent built that's going to be his, his place of dwelling. But even then, as we're going to see next week, there's limitations People can only go into the courtyard. The high priest only has access once a year into the Holy of Holies. And there's these limitations and requirements put upon that place so that God does not consume the people in their sin. There's offerings needed to be made continually so that God can dwell in the midst of his sinful people. See, we can so often, as we read the Bible, we're supposed to go back to this and think about this and realize how frustrating it is. We, we experience so many of the blessings of Christ's coming and the new covenant and the access we have with God. We get to sit in God, amidst God's people week after week and sing his praises in his immediate presence. It's an amazing privilege and not a privilege that the people of Israel got to enjoy. But that's because we live under the new covenant. Christ has come and fulfilled these promises. So let's talk about how he's done that. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, Moses points us forward and says, listen, this is not all there is. There's a greater prophet coming. Listen to what he said. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you will listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Another Israelite is coming who's going to be a greater prophet, but he's going to be like Moses, but he's going to be greater than Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Galatians 3.16, we just read it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. And as we saw, if the promises made to Abraham are bleeding over into the promises that we see here in the the covenant at Sinai, then those promises are made for Christ too. Now, how does Christ fulfill this covenant? Well, he's he's the Jew. He's a Jew in the strict physical sense who can trace his parentage back to Abraham. We see that in Matthew chapter 1 and other places. He lived the life of faith, which God required, according to Galatians 3.7, which qualifies those who have faith in Christ to be sons of Abraham. Christ's death and resurrection as the Son of God atoned for our sin and purchased all the blessings that were promised to Abraham's descendants. Now, only by belonging to Christ now can any Jew or Gentile become a true child of Abraham. The sons of Abraham now are Christians. They are those who have faith in Christ. That's what Galatians 3.7 teaches. And Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So it is through believing in Christ that we become heirs of the promise made to Abraham. So if we become descendants of Abraham and heirs of the promise only by belonging to Christ then it's easy to see why Paul thought of Christ as the final or decisive offspring to whom all the promises were made and who indeed secured the fulfillment of all the promises for our sake. So the point of these verses is that the promise of the inheritance made to Abraham and his offspring and to the people of Israel is fulfilled only in Christ by his death and his resurrection. So why the law then? Why was the the law given here in Exodus 20 and 21 and 22 and 23? Well, Paul makes that clear in Galatians 3. It was given to increase sin. We're going to see Israel blow it royally in the next several weeks. Exodus 32 is one of the most tragic scenes in the entire Bible. They have just experienced all of this. They've experienced God coming down on the mountain They've experienced God's presence enveloping the mountain. They've been invited in, some of them, at least the leadership, to eat and drink with God. They've received God's direct word and revelation to them. They've stipulated the terms of the covenant. They've accepted them. They've wholeheartedly agreed we're going to do that. And then in 32, they don't. They are worshiping a false god at the foot of that very same mountain. The law was given, brothers and sisters, The Ten Commandments was given. The the stipulations that are laid out in 21 through 23 are given to increase the need for Christ. That's what happens. They fail. They break the covenant. And so as a result, who is going to be faithful Israel? Is is there a faithful man in Israel? And there is. And his name is Jesus Christ. So the law is given to show people that Christ is necessary. 
That's what Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 19 through 22. So how does he fulfill this role? How does Christ fulfill this role? Two ways, and this is where we're going to conclude. By perfect mediation and by providing perfect access to God. So let's go, first of all, to the book of Hebrews, and then we're going to come back to Matthew 17 and wrap up. So Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And let's just rejoice this morning over these passages as it points us to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has provided us direct and immediate access to God. Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 18. Again, the writer to the Hebrews is referring back to this covenant that we're reading about in Exodus 24. Verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he's referring to Exodus 24, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, that is the book of the covenant, and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, but which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Listen to me, friends. That's true of all of us. We will all die. We will all come into judgment. Here's your hope. Here's all of our hope. Verse 28. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Stop there. Not everyone is forgiven by Jesus' work. You're not forgiven this morning by sitting here in this church service. You're not forgiven this morning by trying to be a good person. You're not forgiven this morning. The only way you get access is to trust him to bear your sin. And it says he will bear your sin, but he bears the sins of many, not of all. Those who believe in him have their sins covered. And he will appear a second time. He's coming again. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Are you waiting for him to come back? Are you longing for him to come back? Do you desire him to come back? Those are the, those are the saved. That's the people who are going to be saved by him. Eagerly waiting for him. Trusting him to bear their sins. Waiting for him to come back. And it says here that Christ is our hope to gain full access with God. There's no, there's no other needs. We don't need any other rites. We don't need any, any other sacrifices. We don't need any other rituals. We don't need any other traditions. We need Christ and Christ alone. Not only did Christ enjoy perfect intimacy with the Father eternally, something of which we get a brief picture of when Moses goes up into the cloud, but he also gave it up for us. He did it. That, we, that he might come to earth and die only then to re-enter the holy place to offer the blood of sacrifice. 
according to Hebrews 9.12, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. He's the only one who can mediate on our behalf to the Lord. And without him, we would not even be able to enter, enjoy the partial presence that the elders in Exodus 24 enjoyed. Praise God for Jesus Christ who brings us fully and finally into the presence of God. That's perfect mediation. Now perfect access. Let's look at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. This is the New Testament, one more New Testament parallel of what's going on in the book of Exodus. And you're going to see so many parallels between Christ and Moses here and what Moses does in Exodus 24 and what Jesus does in Matthew 17. There's intentional parallels given to point us to our need for him. So Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James. So that's important because Moses took with him Nadab and Abihu and the elders. There's a group of people going up into the presence of God. And John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So four people are going into the presence of God. That's the same as was stated in Exodus 24, except the elders are left out. But you have, in Exodus 24, you've got Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Here, you've got Jesus, John, Peter, and James. Verse 22, or verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, that is Jesus, and his face shone like the sun. That's exactly the phrase that's used to describe Moses when he comes down the mountain, that his face was shining like the sun. And his clothes became as white, verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses, representing the law and the Sinai covenant, and Elijah, representing the prophets, talking with him. Verse 4, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. They're experiencing something of what Moses and the other leaders experienced in the presence, this welcoming, felt presence of God. I will, and now Peter says, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, you're all on the same plane. I'm going to build up a, a tent for Jesus, a tent for Moses, and a tent for Elijah. But listen to what Jesus says. Verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's exactly what God said in Exodus 24, only now he's, he's, he's saying, These three are not on an even plane. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Elijah. Listen to him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, just like it happened at the mountain of Sinai in Exodus 24. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, Matthew in particular is trying to draw his readers' attention to Moses and Sinai. The story he tells echoes what we've seen in Exodus 24, but it completes it and it moves it forward. Jesus, like Moses, goes up on a high mountain. After six days, three individuals are given special privilege along with him. A cloud descends, and a voice calls out from the cloud, and his face shines like the sun. Patrick Schreiner, New Testament professor, says the following on what these parallels intend. He says, the parallels are clear, but to what end? Matthew portrays Jesus not only as the new prophet and the new mediator, but as the one who truly shows what it's like to follow the law and thereby be transfigured in God's presence. When Moses received the law and was himself transfigured, this revealed the law's aim all along, transformation before God. The goal of the Exodus 
was to place Israel in their land under the rule of God, beholding his face and becoming like him. When Jesus is transfigured before the three disciples, he completes the story of Moses. He becomes the new mediator who goes up on the new mountain and reflects God's presence. This fulfills the hope of the people living under the rule of God and becoming like him. Jesus moves the story forward because unlike Moses, Jesus' face now always shines. And he doesn't have to cover his face. Jesus reveals the will of God in his shining face. So while this story of the inauguration of the old covenant that we see in Exodus 24 gives us a wonderful picture of the beginnings of a close relationship between the Lord and his people, we've already noted that it's inadequate. That covenant is inadequate. Not because the covenant itself is bad, but because the people's hearts cannot do it. They can't do it. They're in sin. They're under sin. But our eyes are now thrown forward by looking at Exodus and he, or sorry, by looking at Matthew and by looking at Hebrews, to the new covenant. And through the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we're not left standing at the bottom of the mountain, trembling, looking on. Rather, we are invited by the hand of Jesus to rise and have no fear and to be welcomed into God's presence with perfect intimacy. Paul even goes so far as to say that our new covenant experience is greater than that of Moses. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the glory that made his face shine, that is Moses' face, it eventually faded. We are being transformed from one degree of glory into another as we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful privilege, and it's one that we should be careful not to neglect. We should make the most of it, gazing daily on the perfect glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to the Lord in prayer, walking closely with him, knowing that he dwells in our hearts by the Spirit. We have an experience of God that has yet to be fulfilled in its completeness, but is much richer and much greater and much more awesome than anything they experienced. They would long for a taste of what we get. So even though the ultimate fulfillment of this passage is yet to come, we're looking forward to it. Because we will be physically welcomed, body and soul, into the presence of God to see his glory with our own eyes. Turn with me to Revelation 22, and with here we'll conclude. Revelation, last chapter. You just flip all the way to the end of the Bible if you want to. It's the last chapter. Revelation 22, the last verses. We read the following Sorry, 21, not 22. My mistake. Chapter before the last one. Beginning at verse 21 of chapter 21. Sorry, 22 of chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will, bring, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever in it, nor anyone who does, not, does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. First, chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. There it is. Haven't seen it since Genesis. It's back. 
with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no, no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Whew. As wonderful as it is to enjoy God's new covenant presence now, how much wonderful is that day going to be when God fulfills it and brings us into his immediate presence all because of the work of our Savior? Let's pray together and worship team, come lead us. Father, we have in many ways taken a long drink from a theological fire hose this morning. We've tried to digest a lot um, related to the story of the Bible and how these covenants work together and how they ultimately point forward to our, our need for and the solution in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to be the greater Moses. Thank you, for achieve, thank you Lord Jesus, for being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. Because your life is what we need. And your death is what we need. We need a perfect life lived for our imperfection and sin. And we need a perfect death to cover our sin. And Lord Jesus, in that, in you, we have all that we need. We have the perfect life lived in our place. We have a perfect death died in our place. If there's anyone here this morning who has yet to collapse completely on Jesus Christ for the utter hope of eternal life, turning away from all their own works and all their own efforts and all their own goodness and all their own sin and just collapsing completely on him. May you lead them to do that today. May you bring them into the kingdom through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will bear their sin. He will bring them safely into God's presence. There is no other way. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to rise and worship you with free access to your presence the opportunity to sing songs to you that are heard by you and pleasing to you, though we ourselves are frail and broken and sinful and weak. But because we are trusting in Christ, because we are looking to him alone, you say to us what you said to him, these are my children in whom I am well pleased. So we thank you for that reality in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.